Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and this week we're talking to one of my very favorite authors in the whole world. John Grisham! No. R.L. Stein. No. George R.R. R. Martin. He needs to finish that book, so he should be busy. <laughs> oh, wait. I know. Sandra Cisneros. Yes, Sandra Cisneros. I should have guessed. She's the author of many of my favorite books, chief among them The House on Mango Street, which I reread maybe once a year. The House on Mango Street is a book that I vaguely remember reading in American Lit in high school. Why did it stick with you? My dad was a Puerto Rican kid who grew up on the streets in New York. He didn't tell us a ton of stories about his family. He didn't know his family very well. But the stories I do know about his childhood, his mother, his brothers, they all have this connection to the stories in Cisneros' work. And so when I read her books, it feels like I'm getting to know my own family a little better. And I have to say, it's not just because I feel a connection to what the stories are about. It's also how she writes. She writes these earnest characters that are fiercely feminist. The main character in The House on Mango Street is a teenage girl named Esperanza. And you're seeing the world through her eyes. Now, these are not like your contemporary stories about teenage girls, where teenagers are fighting dragons or maybe even other teenagers to, to the be able death. to eat. <laughs> this is not a post-apocalyptic dire scenario that we're talking about. No, this is Sandra Cisneros understanding that just being a young person can be incredibly stressful and difficult to manage. So even if there aren't real live fire-breathing dragons in your neighborhood, you're learning to deal with monsters as you grow up. So this is sort of like Judy Bloom for you. Exactly. A little more like Judy Bloom. Trisha, I didn't get to sit in on this conversation, but I'm so glad you did. It sounds like it was a pretty magical experience for you. Yeah, I mean, Nerdette is for us about bringing you conversations with fascinating and passionate people. And sometimes, bonus, it's about getting to talk to one of our literary heroes. Sandra's latest book is called A House of My Own, and it's not really an autobiography. It's more a collection of essays and stories from throughout her life. One of my favorite parts of this book is that it includes these footnotes of older Sandra reflecting on what younger Sandra was mm. writing, which I think are really lovely. That is really sweet. And for Sandra, there's a big difference between being a capital A author and a lowercase w writer. Right. Authors with a capital A have to worry about Twitter accounts and book tours and all the businessy stuff that goes with trying to make it as a creative person who can, you know, feed themselves. Mm -hmm. But Sandra says that finding a balance between that and writing is a perpetual struggle because writing has nothing to do with being the author. And it has everything instead to do with finding quiet and space to tell stories. And for that, Sandra says she needs a house of her own. I'm a, a tecolote, an owl, and I'm not a rooster. And uh, I finish working really late at night, and uh, it's hard to go out at, you know, at the time that I finish working and find people who want to talk about the things you want to talk about. So I wind up making phone calls late at night, looking for my California friends, West Coast friends who are still awake, and talking to them as late as I can, as, as I can, you know, usually. That's, that's the thing. You've got to talk after being uh, so many hours channeling voices in your head. 
I love in this book that on uh, some of the pieces, there's footnotes, and they're not academic dry footnotes. These are uh, whispers and asides about what we've just read. And one of my favorites is you said, but really, I would rather do almost anything at this point than be a writer. And you quote a bunch of interesting jobs selling popcorn. But my favorite is Judge RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. You know, I've always been a fan <laughs> of RuPaul for a long, long time. I love his book. I, I just like him. I like what he's doing. And I, I think what he's doing is a great work of the spirit. Uh, so I want to be on that show and give an amen. You know, I, 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 my goal is one day to have RuPaul blurb one of my books. Oh, gosh, RuPaul, that would be great. are you listening? <laughs> I think because we both come from neighborhoods where we had to run away from our neighborhoods to kind of come back, I think we would understand each other and get each other. You bring that up in the book as well, the idea that you have to leave home to be able to see it and know it. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? I think because other people are mirrors. I think everybody's a walking mirror. You know, we we don't realize what we're reflecting until we leave. And uh, so when we meet other people that aren't like us, that didn't grow up in our neighborhood or our city or our region of the world, uh, their difference makes us see who we really are. I think I'm right now about the same age as you were when you were writing Mango Street. And I have that same experience now when I go home. I grew up in Michigan where I'm suddenly seeing it in a much different way. And I have an uh, an older sibling who's raising his kids in the town we grew up in. And when I go to events watching, you know, six-year-olds play basketball on a Saturday morning or these kinds of things, the whole thing has taken on somewhat of a cinematic feel to me because I've been away for long enough that it feels so familiar and like I'm watching it from far, far away all yeah. at the same time. Yeah, isn't it exciting when, you're, when your life becomes this movie that you're watching? And uh, I feel like, like the thing that all young people should do, all citizens of the United States should travel because in, in the United States, we don't travel very much. And if we travel, we go from you know, one coast to the other, possibly, possibly. <laughs> but uh, we, we're so afraid of, of being uncomfortable And it's important for us to feel uncomfortable so that we can identify with other people who are uncomfortable and have more of a compassionate heart. I I wish for all my nieces and nephews to travel. I always try to take them with me someplace so they can see themselves a little better, a little more accurately. You don't know what it means until you leave. Exactly. And so you get to know yourself better if you learn another language or go to another culture. You mentioned language, and there's a part in A House of My Own where you talk about the fact that there are those who have a second language that is connecting them to their family, you know, that's the language of the home for them. And then there are those, and I fall into this camp, who had a parent who worked so hard to learn English that he never taught us Spanish. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that cuts you off in a way from your own history. And I just wonder how you think about that language as being a part of family and home now I have this theory about our language being an archaeology based on the way language is put together in our families. And our families maybe have quirky little expressions that might have come because you come from Pennsylvania or because maybe they were the grandchildren of immigrants or uh, they only heard a certain word spoken uh, or they're making a transition of a translation from one culture to another, even if you never spoke another language. There's something idiosyncratic about everyone's language. I like to use this comparison of like how in uh, certain countries like Mexico, when you look at the cathedral, they're made up of the same stones 
that were once the pyramids. And I think our language is like that. You know, the what is now a cathedral used to be a pyramid and a couple of generations before. Like, I don't know about you, but in my family, for example, uh, we never use the correct phrase when we speak in English about turning a light off. In fact, I'm not sure even now as I say this what's correct. We say, like, <laughs> close the light or is it shut the light? I never know which one it is. And when I say it in English, I always think, oh, did I say that right? Or did I just give myself away as being the daughter of an immigrant? I don't know which one it is. Is it close or is it shut? Which one is it when you leave a room um, say close? the light or shut the light? I think I say shut the light I think it's off. shut, but I think, but in Spanish, it's, it's cerrar. Mm-hmm. So you use this translation that my mother used because she was the daughter of immigrants. And because she said it, it sounded right to us growing up. And even now <laughs> at 60, I don't know what's right. So I think that happens to each of us that we have little family phrases. That's just my theory. I give it out there to the linguists who'd like to run with it. <laughs> I love it. I have one that is a word my grandmother used that I don't think is a word that I love because it just onomatopoetically works. What is and it? If you're complaining, you're stinkoshing. <laughs> I just like that a lot. And I've never heard any other person say it outside my family. But it's, <laughs> you know when someone's doing it, when they're just kind of griping. And you know, my grandfather, who was an immigrant and didn't learn how to read or write till he was a senior citizen, uh, he used to say when something was just like pure nonsense, he'd say, Puro Dracula. Pure Dracula. Now, where that came from and what it meant, I can only guess because I only found out about this after his death. But I like to think that here he was living in the United States watching all these monster movies in the 50s. and Everything was junk. And he'd say, Puro Dracula. Still to come, we have more with Sandra Cisneros. She and Trisha talk about how libraries can save lives why it's important to write about being different, and what might just be the two most important rules in life. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. This week, Trisha is talking to one of her literary heroes, Sandra Cisneros. Sandra was one of seven kids, the only daughter Ooh. in a working... I know, six brothers. <laughs> that's a lot of brothers. We each have one. I feel that's enough. One is enough. enough. <laughs> Love you, brother. But one brother is sufficient brother. Yes, sufficient. <laughs> so she's one of seven kids in this working class family growing up in Chicago in the 80s. Uh, a composite character of her and a lot of her neighbors become the characters in The House on Mango Street. And one of the things I wanted to talk to her more about that pops up here and there in her work is this love of libraries and museums. And this comes from her mother. The thing that people don't realize is my mom never finished ninth grade, but she was always in the museums, even as a child. She used to like uh, pay, play hooky and go to the museums or climb out of the window on Saturdays when she should have been doing her chores so she could go to the museum. <laughs> and uh, she had this habit when we were kids, too, of like every Sunday, 
demanding that we go to the museums. My father would have liked to have just been horizontal on Sundays, but he was forced to drive us to a different <laughs> museum every Sunday. And, uh, you know, we would go to concerts in Grant Park, and we would go to the Field Museum and the Art Institute and the Science and Industry and the History Museums. And all of that became our playground and uh, influenced us and changed us for the better because, you know, we came from Humble Park and uh, we lived on poor neighborhoods. And the library. You talk so often about the Chicago Public Library. This is another thing that connects with me so deeply because my dad grew up a Puerto Rican orphan in New York City and always said the New York Public Library saved his life. Yeah, we never owned books, and I really didn't even know there was such a thing as bookstores until I was an adult. I didn't know you could buy a book. I thought all books were property of the state. They were so valuable. We were always in the libraries, even before I knew how to read. To me, it was just a quiet house, a house you could think. And my own place, you know, was we lived in apartments with nine people crowded in a tiny space. So it was more important for me just to have a quiet space, just so you could imagine things you couldn't imagine at home because there was too much noise. <laughs> I like the idea, too, that uh, you and your brother had a plot to buy a book. Oh, we, we wanted a book so badly, but we didn't know how you could buy it because I had never seen a bookstore in our neighborhood. And, of course, when we went downtown, we went to the museums and we didn't go to the downtown shopping. Uh, I, I had no idea that you could actually buy a book. And the book we wanted so badly was Virginia Lee Burton's The Little House. Uh, so my brother and I planned to tell the librarian that we'd lost it. And that way we could save our quarters from our Sunday allowance and pay for it. But we couldn't lie to the librarian. It was and a good idea. you never should, children. Yeah, Don't lie no, to do not lie to librarians. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we couldn't lie to the librarian. So we never acted out our plot. I think writing and being a writer who's maybe in their 20s, I think of someone like Lena Dunham who's had this great success. She has a TV show. She has a book out. She's doing all these things. And I think she's probably about the same age as you were as you were getting going. You know, in the show, she goes to Iowa. But I yeah, think but it's about, not that the IOI I went to. Not it's the, an invented <laughs> Iowa that Lena's created in her mind. <laughs> a, very, a very invented Iowa, a very invented New York City, many would say, yes. in her work. But I think about the expectation of being not just a working writer, but an author with a capital A who's on these book tours and always on social media and doing these things. Does that drain an artist from being able to create, to have to do those things now to be able to promote their own work? Well, I'd say to young people, do you want to be a writer or do you want to be an author? Mm. They're different. They're opposites. To be the writer is such an introverted route to plummet the depths of your heart and to be able to write accurately and with courage. And to be the author has nothing to do with being the writer. (laughs) It's about going out there and selling your work and spending a lot of time making those connections, as you say. So they're opposites, and they're different parts of the brain, like creating and editing are. So I think they're necessary, especially in these times, to be able to do both. But you can't do both at the same time. No, and I think, too, the business side of publishing and writing is placing too much emphasis on the capital A author work and not enough on the other work because I've heard from friends who are trying to freelance in New York City that you can't pitch them a piece unless you have X number of Twitter followers as if that's the value of you as a writer. Wow. Imagine if I had to do that. I don't even have a Twitter account. So where would I be? I don't know if I could manage being the author and the writer in my 20s. The other change that 
must make making art now much different is the constant feedback, good and bad, that's accessible. Oh, I never thought about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it used to you be know? maybe, you know, the book gets accepted or denied by a publisher and you read or avoid a couple of newspaper reviews or something like that. But now... Well, you know, I think part of the problem is people just kind of press send whenever they feel like it. And they just put it out there like shrapnel. In your most recent book, you include a letter that you wrote to someone who wanted your book banned. Yes. And you talked about having to take a breath and a little time before rewriting your I initial draft. I rewrote that letter like for seven days all day long. And uh, you know, if I had sent it as an email, imagine where I'd be. But because I wrote it with the exercise, okay, you have to start where you are, where you're angry, but write it as if you, the person you love the most is going to read it. So I imagined I was sending it to my father, who I often disagreed with, and that allowed me to write with respect. I wish everyone on the internet did that all the time. <laughs> and all the time, or, or at least filed it, mm-hmm. or write it and delete it. Everybody doesn't have to see every thought that comes out of your head. <laughs> you know, I think that there's two rules. You tell the truth, and two, don't hurt anyone. And sometimes that means deleting. It's more important to write than it is to send things out there. I love the moment in your book when you talked about the first time you brought home a translation of something you'd written and your father could read it. Can you talk a little about that? My father was uh, one of these men who only read books that had like little bubbles coming out of people's mouth, little comic books. And one day I finally had one of my stories translated into uh, Spanish. And I thought, oh, finally my father can read something I wrote. And I sat down with him, and he read it. And it took so long, I thought he was reading it backwards. (laughs) And when he finally was done, he looked up and said, where can we get more copies of this for the relatives? I love you said in there, too, that he laughed in all the right places, and he read his favorite lines out loud. And I'm not sure there's a better way to show your love for a writer than to do that when (laughs) you're reading something that they've written. Yes, especially because I wrote it about his neighborhood, his house, a place in his past that was very special to me. You do that often, and you create these composites in your work of your life, your cousin's life, your students' lives all together. Mm -hmm. Do you ever worry about the responsibility of being, unfortunately, one of the few people who are writing about that life experience in such a popular way that you're... I do. You're right. I feel I'm on a mission, and I feel that especially when I meet my public, when I'm the author. I don't think about it when I'm the writer, or not much, I should say. But I truly want everybody to write their own stories or for more writers from communities that are underrepresented to write their stories, because I can't write everybody's stories. I try, and uh, I was so happy when Reina Grande wrote her story of crossing over the border as a as an immigrant in, in her book, The Distance Between Us. I was waiting for that story. I didn't realize it was going to be written by a woman and a child at that because uh, I can't write that story of what it's like to cross and get to this country and and try to cross and be illegal and try to hide. I don't know that story. And she wrote it so beautifully. So I'm, I'm waiting for more of those stories, of the stories of the communities, of the dreamers, of, of all, all ages that need to be written, of all ethnicities, of all sexualities. I, I can't write except the stories that I witness. And there's so much that I'm missing out on. If 
someone can read your work, then it will inspire them to write their own story. I hope and so. And then we'll get to read all of those stories. Yes, I hope so. And uh, I hope it gives them animo, you know, encouragement. Because, you know, I, I had those writers that were Chicago writers that gave me animo, Gwendolyn Brooks and Studs Terkel and Theodore Dreiser and so many writers that I read their works, Carl Sandburg, and they gave me permission to write my story. Still to come, we have more with Sandra Cisneros. This is Nerdette. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. This week, Trisha is talking to one of her literary heroes, Sandra Cisneros. Now, I don't want to keep you too long, but we do ask all of our guests on Nerdette to do one thing before they leave. Sing? Well, you could if you like. (laughs) We would be happy to have you sing, but we ask you to assign our listeners some homework. What would you like people to read, watch, listen to, consider, do in their lives if they're listening to this right now? I would ask everyone to listen to Maria Kala singing uh, La Mama Morta. and pain in that song to me always guides me when I want to write. Uh, I would ask them to read Thich Nhat Hanh's Being Peace. His, that book changed my life. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk and it really changed me in my way of, of making change in the world. Uh, I would tell them to read any book that they feel passionate about. I hate to say read this and read that because those, that's my prescription. These are the books that changed my life. But any book that makes you feel alive and tells your story, that's the book you should be reading. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you. Sandra Cisneros. Trisha, I'm really excited to reread The House on Mango Street. I really want you to. I mean, I think I get more out of it every time I read it. And if you read it last in school, reread it because there's a lot there. And it's really, there's some stories in it that are just going to knock your socks off, I think, if you go back and reread that book as an adult. Also check out her newest book, A House of My Own. You can find that and links to all of your homework at nerdatpodcast.com. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrun Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because, in fact, you already are. <laughs> we would appreciate it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Follow us on NPR One. All of the things. Thanks to Pre-Raphaelite for giving us five stars. Pre-Raphaelite says that each Nerdette episode is like a present they're waiting to open. 
which means that they're kind of like you, except you don't wait to open yeah, presents. I'm so terrible. I just am bad at surprises. I get so excited that it's like I just want to, yeah. you know, want to share. You actually are a little better at waiting to open presents you're being given. But when you buy yeah. something for someone, it's like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. even get wrapped. It's just, no, here, it's I got you a thing. But though, for the record, when you bought me that Presidential Pets desk calendar, you didn't wrap it. You just handed it right to me. Yeah, but because I was so excited exactly. to give you a presidential See? pet's <laughs> desk calendar. Okay, so we're both bad it's at It's not this. just on me is all I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. But pre raphaelite gave us five stars, and for that I give them five stars in return, which means <laughs> that I guess we're still out of stars, which means we need you to give us some. Oh, there you go. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Instagram is fun. That's where Greta writes teeny tiny book reviews, so make sure you follow us there. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find an abundance of all sorts of great nerdy podcasts. You can find out more at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Trisha, speaking of homework. What? How you doing on the bed making? I mean, <laughs> I may have fallen off the wagon. That's that's fair. The bed making wagon. Yeah. We got a really great tweet from someone yesterday asking if it counted if they were thinking about making their bed. How do you feel about that? It's the first step. <laughs> They're considering the notion. I, I offered half a gold star. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, really, no stars. You can think about giving them a gold star. <laughs> oh, there you go. I will consider giving you a gold star. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.